0: Welcome to the VodPod. It's just
1: Welcome to The Vodpod, your one-stop shop for all things streaming, Uh, whether that's hidden gems on Netflix and Amazon to uh, the big new releases, or uh, double bill recommendations to go with what's in cinemas. Uh, This week, Nathaniel is away, so instead he's been replaced by me, uh, Ivan, I'm the editor of Vodzilla, uh, and I'm joined by one of our writers, uh, contributor to Little White Lies, one of my favourite people, and all-round good egg, Chris Blom.
0: Hi Chris. Oh hi Ivan. Hi, hi, how's it going? I'm all right. Uh, I am recovering from The Disaster Artist, which I watched last night, ah. uh, uh, and uh, I'm, st- I- I'm shaken to my very core by it. I'm sure we'll touch upon that a bit later. But yes, apart from that, I'm, I'm good. I'm good.
1: But you can, uh, you can find Chris on Twitter, at Chris if you'd like to follow him. I highly recommend doing so. We're going uh, to get cracking straight away, starting off with our first section, which is The Hidden Gem.
0: This
1: one's not so obvious The Hidden Gem Uh, So Chris, uh, this is the part where you recommend uh, a film to me on a subscription service that I haven't seen. Uh, What have you, or or perhaps what our listeners haven't seen, uh, what have you you gone for
0: this week? So I've gone for Little Men. Uh, It's on Netflix, um, and it's uh, a film from 2016 directed by Ira Sachs, Iris, Axe, you may remember from a couple of years ago, made a movie called Love is Strange with John Lithgow and Alfred Molina. Mm. Um, And this continues very much in that same vein of erudite New York talky middle class people having crises. Uh, (laughs) Kind of style that he does. Um, This is about um, uh, an actor played by Greg Kinnear. Uh, who um, uh, has an opportunity to move into his father's old apartment in Brooklyn. He's currently living in Manhattan. It's too expensive. Um, uh, and so he moves his entire family to, from Manhattan into Brooklyn and um, immediately becomes comes into conflict um, with the tenant of the ground floor space, Uh, which is occupied by a little shop, uh, a little shopkeeper and her and her uh, 13 year old son. The two families go to war uh, over the ownership of the space. Um, But in the middle of it all, the sons form a a strong bond and it's about their friendship while the chaos is erupting, I guess, around them. Um, I really love it. It's a, a charming, erudite, delicate little movie, which is very quietly angry um, that has a lot to say about gentrification. Um, and the reason why I'm picking it is is actually sort of slightly personal uh, in that I found myself uh, for a little while earlier this year in New York. Um, and I stayed for about 10, 11 nights in Brooklyn in a place called Park Slope. Uh, and Park Slope is possibly the most gentrified neighborhood i've ever been <laughs> in my entire life um it's you know uh, artisan bakeries mm. um it is lesbian uh, couples walking their very fluffy dogs um it is kids on skateboards delivering records that have probably been ordered by somebody via an app um I mean that's the kind of neighbourhood it is. It's it's pretty unique. I'm and-
1: trying to think of a London equivalent to that.
0: <laughs> and, and 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 I was walking I spent a lot of time walking around Brooklyn thinking, My goodness, this is little men. This is what's going on in this film. Uh if you go to Williamsburg and you walk from the train station in Williamsburg, uh the subway station, at, I think at Marcy Avenue, and you walk from there to the river, you pass a road and somebody's graffitied gentrification kills on the ground. Um, and I was walking around this place just going, you know what? This is, this is little Man. This is what this, this film is about. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an angry film. That's very much of its time, um, uh, but has a unique sense of place uh, and it is the most New York-y thing ever. And if you're like me and you, you're obsessed with New York in, in, in that kind of way, I think you'd really, really, really love it. Um, so, yeah, Little Men, very New York-y, very Brooklyn, very now, very funny, but also a little bit angry uh, uh, with it as well.
1: Have you always been obsessed
0: with New York? Yeah, I have still wanted to go there since I was a kid, and um, finally an opportunity came up this year to go and spend a bit of time over there. What's interesting is that it's... The cliches are true. It's like walking. In, it's like walking into a film. <laughs> um, and I remember very specifically um, uh, a couple of days into the trip, um, me and my pals were walking around the Brooklyn Museum, and the last thing we came to is we did the sort of the circuit of the Brooklyn Museum, which is just sort of uh, 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 around the corner from Park Slope where we're staying. The very last thing you come to is this big hall, this big pavilion, and I was walking through it going oh my goodness, I've walked into Little Men because the very final scene of Little Men takes place in the hall in the Brooklyn Museum. It is that kind of place. Um, uh, if, if you haven't been, go and do it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people spend a few days in Manhattan. And they don't tend to see a lot of Brooklyn, um, but it's a really extraordinary place, albeit gentrified to hell. But fascinatingly, um, it's, it's, it's a really, really sort of um, unusual, strange, beautiful, trendy, hipster place. Mm. A liberal Valhalla. It's, you know, you walk along your street and everyone has a sort of, you know, screw Trump type sign on their wall. Um, the owner of the house that we were staying in, he doesn't even lock his door at night because he feels so safe. Um, it is a ridiculous place um, and definitely worth a visit. Um, cool. Beautifully depicted, I should I, add, I should say, by <laughs> Iris Sachs in this movie. He's uh, very
1: good at locations, isn't he? I'm thinking, yeah. you know, Love is Strange, uh, particularly very very much kind of all about that long running relationship and that kind of commitment between John Lithgow and Alfa Molina's characters in the face of this shifting location as they all kind of couch surf around the place into kind of different neighbourhood demographics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a time, of course, when someone like Woody Allen, for example, would be sort of, or Martin Scorsese, these guys would be seen as the sort of definitive um, New York filmmakers, if you like. Yeah. But I think Iris Sachs is really showing the the 21st century new york um on screen in, in a way that that you know um people who are familiar with new york from the movies may not be as as familiar with you know the yeah. real life um there so in films like keep the lights on as well you yes, know yeah. uh, very much immersed in the place and the neighbourhood. And the the feel of um, uh, the you know, exciting things going on in these sort of worlds in these silos. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and all, I mean, all three of those films are all very quite different in tone, but they all, I suppose, they are all anchored around uh, a, a male relationship.
0: Yeah. I mean, very different uh, types of male relationships yeah. as well, you know, from lust to a marriage to f- the formative years, I guess, of two friends mm-hmm. who may or may not talk to each other again when yeah. they are grown up. You're not quite sure. But for a small moment in time, they exist in this little bubble, um, uh, you know, th- th- they they are isolated in a world and protected, I guess, from the. The, um, the habits and the misbehaviors of the adults in their lives who are causing so much disruption, um, which again is a metaphor for the gentrification of the community, you know, turning it into something that is protected and isolated mm. from the, the evils and the harm of the world, um, uh, which I think is, is really you know, nicely depicted.
1: You've convinced me that I need to see this, um, because shockingly, despite being an Iris Axe fan, I have not seen Little Men. Um, in fact we might as well just stop now and I'll just, I'll just go and watch it you can just <laughs> hang for a couple of hours if that's cool
0: no I won't do that oh. uh, that's a terrible idea okay. you, but you definitely should go and watch that uh, uh, at your earliest opportunity uh, it, it's definitely the best film it was one of my favourite films of 2016 mm-hmm. and it's probably one of my favourite films of the last 10 years
1: excellent, cool so I'm going to hit you back with, uh, with a hidden gem of my own uh, this one's dating back uh, a little further uh, this goes back to 2007 If you remember that glorious year, Um, by glorious year, I basically mean any year that didn't involve Donald Trump being president. But this is uh, this is The Lookout, if you've ever seen that film. I haven't seen The Lookout. Is this a Franco? Uh, no, no it is not.
0: Uh, it is it's, a, oh, is it a Frank? It's it, a Frank. it is that's a why, Frank. That's why I'm, that's why I'm getting it. I'm exactly. Getting, this week is all Scott Frank and James Franco. Exactly, it's all, all the Franks, Franks all the time.
1: Yeah, this is by, directed by Scott Frank, who uh, is the director of Netflix's new Western series, Godless. Uh, and this was his directorial debut, uh, almost 10 years old now. Uh, And uh, it stars none other than Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who I'm aware you are a particular fan of.
0: Um, I am. This is is a lesser-seen Gordon-Levitt, I would suggest.
1: It is. It's one of the lesser Levitts. (laughs) And uh, he actually plays in it. He plays a character called Chris Pratt, which is uh, rather brilliant. uh, Excellent. I, I know. Exactly. Right. Who knew at the time... Uh, but uh, but Joseph Gordon Levitt is fantastic uh, in this. He plays uh, plays Chris Pratt, who is a, a kind of a former ice hockey prodigy, who has a car crash with a combine harvester, as you do, uh, and kind of winds up uh, you know mentally, physically scarred from this accident. Uh, and he's left uh, you know a broken man, a shell of a man. He he goes through these these routines, you know, day to day life. Uh, can't really use a can opener. Um, you know, it's the kind of film that has a, uh, a voiceover constantly going through it, kind of always filtering everything through that kind of really limited uh, perspective. Um, and he works as, you know, he works as a cleaner in a bank. He's a long way from ice hockey. You know, he's uh, he's, he's that guy in the background with a mop that everyone kind of just looks past, doesn't notice. Uh, except for Gary. Who is played by Matthew Good? Uh, there we go. It's all the all the good actors that that you know you didn't necessarily know about ten years ago, who are now very well known heartthrobs. Matthew Good's in it. He plays Gary, who uh, who befriends uh, Chris in a bar, uh, and effectively turns out to be not a very nice man, and is grooming Chris to help them with a heist of the bank where he works as a cleaner. It's it's kind of like a heist thriller. Uh, a crime drama very uh quiet low-key character study all of these things going on at the same time it arrived kind of shortly after joseph gordon levitt was in uh ryan johnson's brick if you've uh if you've seen that
0: i have seen brick what is the um was this pre this is pre premium rush right oh yes yes yeah because really. premium rush let's be honest is the gordon levitt masterpiece
1: that's the one in which he plays a a bike courier is that right
0: that's right yes. yeah yeah right card uh, is David the, the post uh, <laughs> <laughs> i will have to catch up with it i uh, i Ooh. have to say it is not it's not been uh, on my radar at all uh, but scott uh, Scott frank plus George go to school exactly. plus it's a bit bricky
1: yeah it's so Brick like kind United. of like a high school noir this is kind of like a high school memento and you have that slightly unreliable narrator going on um indeed <laughs> and uh and he's also uh interestingly another another Scott Frank Godless connection Jeff Daniels is in it too. Um, i know everyone is in this film uh and he plays uh chris's roommate who's a laid-back hippie who also happens to be blind and he's the the jovial heart of the of the film We provide support to chris i found myself thinking about it when when the godless came out on netflix um because frank is very good at uh these intense macho elements in his in this film but at the same time he's also very good at kind of subtle character work um you know he wrote um he wrote logan for example um and uh, and and the lookout the lookout has all of those elements, um, and this is the point where Frank has been he's been writing for a while, and this is the point where he stepped behind the camera to you know to film what he was writing, and it's uh, it's a nice little start of a of a filmmaking talent who I you know genuinely think is 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 a very good director and a very good storyteller, um, but he's also surrounded himself with this cast of people who go on to become, you know, bigger than they were at the time. Uh, you know, in the case of Jeff Daniels, everyone already knows who Jeff Daniels is. But um, but these up and coming people, good talents, all doing excellent work. And it's you know, it's a film that you could easily just not notice at all. Almost ten years old now, but frankly, it still really stands the test of time. And that's uh, that's the lookout. Uh, that's on Amazon Prime Video.
0: Interesting that that's Jeff Daniels and Jessica and Levitt, who also went on to star in Looper. Yes, by yeah. Ryan Johnson, Mm-hmm. who made Brick. Yes. Ryan We're Johnson. Johnson Levitt. <laughs>
1: Ryan Johnson and Scott Frank. They're both they are they are the names that all the cool people are talking about.
0: You said uh, Matthew Good was also in it? Yes. Is it as good let's see it is, as M- Matthew Good and Matthew Reese's The Wine Show on ITV? I have not seen that. You are missing out on some of the most transcendent television you will ever watch. Uh, the Wine Show is a television program that broadcast last year on ITV. It was on like Saturday afternoons at half past four. Yeah. And basically, it was Matthew Good and Matthew Reese just sort of traveling around, getting drunk, paid for by ITV. It was kind of like the visit, uh, not the visit, the trip, sorry, yeah. uh, but like a kind of a, a posh radar edition of the trip. Oh, wow, okay. Um, yeah, it was. Or like or, a British
1: equivalent of Sideways.
0: Yeah, you can tell. That it must have been one of the weirdest production meetings. Hmm. Uh, that is, you know, as who, as of who have
1: we place. got that we can get drunk on TV? We've got Matthew Good, Matthew, yeah, Good, yeah, Matthew, Matthew yeah, yeah.
0: and Matthew Reese. Of yeah, course, yeah, yeah him. they're the first names on all of your lips whenever you hear that concept. Do you think uh, they just
1: worked through their kind of Rolodex? They got to the ends.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, who knew that two matthews would be yeah. available that week
1: <laughs> lionel's not already he's not available kevin's not there joe isn't available we've got some matthews
0: anyway i so, yeah. I, I feel like we've gone on a slight tangent Slightly. but i do think it was an important one and you should probably check that out after you've seen little men uh obviously uh but yeah get on it wine show dreadful but you know brilliant
1: excellent uh that's uh, that you know, somehow, somehow takes us very neatly onto uh, our our big release of the week. And that is uh, Scott Frank's Western series on Netflix, Godless.
0: That was the worst link that you could not, you you say, you say it neatly, nicely takes us onto it, onto this. We could not have made a worse link than that. But I am glad that we finally yeah, got it. It
1: was the best of links, it was the worst of links. But more specifically, it was the worst of links.
0: So, Godless.
1: <laughs> Smooth segues as ever. Um, let's start off with a very obvious question. What did you think?
0: Godless is uh, the best thing Netflix have ever done. That in my humble That is a very
1: opinion. strong recommendation.
0: It's not perfect. Uh, there are a couple of flaws. But I think it's um, uh, for the breadth of its vision... For the clarity of its storytelling, the quality of its performances, the um, spectacular um, vistas of its photography, um, I think it's I think it's cracking.
1: There's something that's um... That feels wonderfully apt about releasing it, uh, you know, that as Christmas is coming and, you you know, you have your Boxing Day and those kind of few days afterwards where you're basically vegging on the sofa. Just that's exactly the kind of time where you want to be able to sit down and watch a
0: Western. That just that feels right. And what I like about it, I guess, is the fact that it's the anti-Deadwood. So Deadwood, you know, I think is going to be a natural comparison that people are going to make. Mm-hmm. People are going to go directly to that show uh, and and try and try and try and... Um, uh, lump it in with it. Deadwood was, was a, a unique and a great show on its own terms, but Deadwood was interested in the grime at ground level. This is looking towards the open skies um, and the deserts and the hills. Um, it is a, a, an old school western. It's the man from Laramie. Uh, it's, you know, it's the man who shot Liberty Valance. It's Howard Hawks and George Stevens. You know, there's loads of Shane in this uh, in this mm, show. Yes, yeah,
1: very much. So, yeah. Um,
0: so it has all of that stuff in there, while at the same time feeling, you know, fresh uh, and contemporary, and uh, you know, telling stories that maybe have not been told um, via traditional westerns. Um, I think a lot has been made about the fact that uh, a big focus of this show is on the town of La Belle. La Belle is a is a little place occupied uh, almost entirely by women because all of the guys basically got themselves killed in a mining yeah. disaster. Um, and about the conflict and chaos that descends upon their town um, uh, when when these um, <laughs> uh, these gangsters and um, these
1: pesky men,
0: roll these pesky, up with, their, with their guns, pesky guys with their guns, their tanks and their guns. Um, there are no tanks. Uh, turn up to to to, to play. Um, so it's an interesting, unusual mm. sideways take, I guess, on tropes um, and and storytelling techniques that we've sort of seen a lot but perhaps never on this scale. And especially on, especially due to the fact that this is an eight-hour show. This is a long show. Mm. It takes its time.
1: I was surprised um, by how long the episodes are. you know, the, the first episode alone is, what, 80 minutes? And then they're pretty much all it's 70 it's
0: minutes. minutes. It's, yeah, um, as well, yeah. yeah. There's one that's like forty minutes. Yes, yeah. Which as, it, as it gets other. towards
1: the end, it's yeah. it suddenly starts speeding up and tightening up in a way that you don't really notice when you're kind of binging through. But it, um it's it's fantastic. It just kind of suddenly picks up enough momentum to give you that this showdown at the the end that you're obviously you know building towards.
0: So there's a few things I think are really worth pointing out. So so like I said, this is kind of set on this town of Labelle. Um, it's about a guy called Roy Good, who is a gunslinger uh, who has um, absconded from the villainous gang of Frank Griffin. Yeah. Uh, Roy Goode is played by Jack O'Connell. Yep. Uh, Frank Griffin is J- the aforementioned Jeff Daniels. Mm. Um,
1: Frank is obviously not very happy about the fact that Roy has... Roy, who he kind of considered a son, uh, the, you know, his, his protégé. Right. Uh, Frank is therefore kind of, you know, chasing down Roy, uh, not necessarily partly to get his loot, but really it's, 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 it's about just revenge on Roy for betraying him and for leaving
0: yeah. him. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time, I guess. Um, and I, I think I think what one of there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff about the show. I think Frank Griffin as a villain is fascinating. Mm. I think he's one of the most nuanced and interesting villains that I've seen on any screen um, for a long time. Um, he is a man who. Has uh, experienced tragedy. Um, he, like you say, he's looking for his own family in a way mm-hmm. by grooming and and or, uh, and taking on board these troubled younger men. So not only Roy Good, who is, um, as the name would suggest, he's a pretty good decent guy who who ends up sort of um, going down a wrong path, I guess, but also characters like the Devlin brothers, for example, who are these two um, uh, very very sinister. Uh, young chaps who may or may not have um, uh, indulged in some serial murder in their time. And Frank just seems to accumulate these characters around him, which of course provides some of the impetus for Roy to then go off and do his own thing, because he realises that that Frank is necessarily um uh, is not necessarily uh, acting as a father, but more like a cult leader or a figure in, a, yeah. in that kind of way. And
1: it's fascinating
0: uh, that it's that, really walks, the,
1: that Frank walks around, kind of dressed as a priest. He kind of puts on the. He
0: does, yeah. Um, he,
1: and there's this great scene in, uh, possibly even in episode one or episode two, um, in which he kind of just <laughs> basically stumbles into a church in the middle of their service on a horse, doesn't get down from his horse, and then addresses the congregation uh you know well dressed in 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 you know in a priest 's garb and he has that kind of this this righteous authority about him which you know on the one hand is 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 horrible and quite chilling and intimidating, but at the same time he is you know he really is quite sincere in his in his conviction and in his kind of in his own belief of what 's right.
0: Well, I think it's interesting that I think his his mental deterioration Mm. is, I think, a really big part of his arc in the program. Yes. Um, So you said, you know, at the beginning, he starts off quite confident. Uh, like you say, he sort of strays. He sort of waltzes into a church on a horse. Um, and but by the end, and I, I don't want to spoil too much about the final episode. But by the end, he's almost he's less you know, of that,
1: isn't he? He's Definitely. less of
0: a man. He's yeah. totally still. There's a big, big, you know. It's not a, a, a spoiler to say that the show leads up to a massive gunfight because this is a western, and that's what westerns do. Hmm. But well,
1: the whole thing has that kind of that that portent and this idea of fate and destiny, doesn't it? It's, um,
0: it does. And, but but by the end, he's not even. Well, he's almost not participating. He's almost no. sort of standing there in the middle of it, watching the buzzer, bullets whiz by him.
1: Because at the beginning, um, he's very much talking about this isn't how I die. Because I've, you know, I, I, yeah. I know. And of course, by the end, he's that that goes completely. It's no longer that kind of idea of oh, this is I know what my destiny is. It's now destiny is happening, and he's got he's got no say in it.
0: I mean, his faith is. <laughs> I think it's fair to say misplaced. Um, <laughs> Yes. Hence the title of the show, uh, and and you know I would argue that so so there, there there have been a sort of lot of discussions about whether this is a, a feminist masterpiece. I guess uh, it's the Mad Max Fury Road thing again, which which I think actually has there are some sort of um, thematic and stylistic comparisons between the two, actually. Yeah, but yeah. Um, but um, you know a lot of people have been talking about this this feminist masterpiece because it essentially revolves around a town about women, and we'll talk about you know, some of the, the women uh, characters in second once we dealt with Frank. Um, uh, I would argue it's a humanist masterpiece. Um, it is very much portraying a world uh, which has um, uh, gone wrong, uh, and it's gone wrong through the choices of men. Uh, mm, yes. it, it, it's not gone wrong because of fate or because of predestination or because of faith. It's gone wrong because people have made bad choices and bad decisions. Um, There's a really interesting scene partway through the show when um, Frank Griffin and his gang, um, they come across a family of Norwegian um, emigrants and um, uh, bad things happen. And then the next morning, um, Frank almost, you know, he wakes up and he sees what he's done and he just sort of grunts and sighs and it's almost like he... Um, is disappointed in himself and the choice that he 's made um because he knows that actually deep down he he should be should be better and above this i think um, which I think is part of what makes him really interesting because on the one hand he 's guided by this sort of um almost unshakable belief not only in himself but in his maker and, his, and in his and in his path mm. uh you know the path of how he gets to his is his, his end point to his death. But on the other hand, he has this sort of human side, which, you know, is aware of the fact that he is able to make choices that affect people. And despite that, he chooses the wrong way anyway, unlike, say, the Devlin brothers who are very much supporting characters and part of this gang, who do not seem capable of making choices, Frank realises he's above that, and yet is still guided by this, mm. this, 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 this feeling that um, he, he, um, he is leading to an ultimate end that has already been laid out for him.
1: I, kind of, I like the contrast of, uh, between uh, you know, Frank and the, the few... There are a couple of men who are in La Belle, they're, they're very good there's scoop McNary um as the uh, as the kind of a local sheriff uh bill um but he's um he's kind of he's he's going blind he's not the he's not the man that he he once was uh and then he's got his kind of deputy uh Whitey Wynn, win played by uh, the brilliant thomas brody sangster uh, yes. aka the young boy from love actually
0: aka the young boy from love actually and um the one scene that he has in the force awakens which everyone misses.
1: Yes. No, 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 <laughs> indeed. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and Whitey is this kind of, you know, young deputy sheriff who's very much uh, kind of in love with that idea of the, of the West and the, you know, the gunslinging, you know, manly hero kind of idea. Can we talk
0: about the names? Oh yes. Because I think the names are fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got Whitey. Yeah. Uh, Whitey is the whitest guy. Um, <laughs> he's yeah. very much the young buck gunslinger. Yeah, you know he's very much tr- a tropey kind of character, and he is um, obsessed with a woman who lives in a small sort of shanty town, I guess, outside of the um, outside of the main main part of La Belle. Yeah. Uh, called Blackdom, which is where all, all of the black families live, effectively. And so he spends a lot of Whitey spends a lot of time in Blackdom, basically. Um, so that's interesting. Roy Good, the Jack O'Connell character. Uh, yeah. I think we should talk about Jack O'Connell because he's I think a movie star. Always and he's great. really sort of um, uh, you know stepping up here. I think um, Roy Good is Roy. You know he is good. Yeah. He's the good guy, yeah. and that's that's what he is. This show is not subtle. This show is very on the nose.
1: No, what's great is the fact that it manages to be incredibly, uh, you know,
0: overt with
1: those things. Yeah. And then the cast are good enough to bring nuance to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Griffin, I mean, that was like a mythical creature that looked after and guarded treasures. Um, And, uh, you know, Griffin was uh, historically a symbol of divine power. As well, so going back to what we were saying earlier on about Frank Griffin and his character, you know, it's 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 very much in keeping with that theme. Um, you've got, and then you've got some stuff that's slightly more subtle. So I was looking this stuff up um, a little bit earlier. Alice Fletcher. So let's talk about the women, I think, uh, a little bit because I think. Uh, a lot of this show is about 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 the women mm-hmm. it's not by any means a feminist masterpiece and it can't be a feminist masterpiece because it was directed and written by a man you know as was mad max hero but i think there are certainly strong female characters in it yes. and i think they get really strong arcs and they all get especially at the end in their final episode the hero moment and i think that's really significant yes. but um one of the one of the key characters is alice fletcher Alice Fletcher is um, uh, a woman who lives um, on a ranch outside of LaBelle uh, and Roy Goode um, falls in um, with Alice and she basically hides him from, 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 yeah. from, from, from the gang. And, and that's, she,
1: that's very that's much, much the Shane scenario, isn't it?
0: That's the Shane scenario. Yeah. She's got a son, you know, he's acting as a sort of de facto father figure. Um, there was an actual Alice Fletcher who existed in real life. Uh, Alice Cunningham Fletcher uh, was a philanthropist uh, sorry, not an anthropologist, an anthropologist. I'm, I'm reading now from a bit of paper, uh, and a social scientist. Um, and she was a um, prominent figure in the mid-1800s, and she was um, an expert in American Indian culture. And her actions led to the uh, implementation of the Dawes Act, which is a very famous piece of historical legislation. That was the act that basically um, took – All of the um, Native American land uh, and divided it up and basically um, promoted ownership of land um, to the indigenous people and has since been blamed for a lot of the um, uh, the the misfortunes that have uh, fallen them um, since. Which I think is very fascinating in the context of Godless uh, mm. that, that he would choose to name her after that. So that was interesting. You are um, putting me
1: to shame, by the way, here with your sorry. historical <laughs> research and your pieces of paper and <laughs> reading. You know I, I can't to, read. You don't I have to, to bring make. that and One of the wipe that in show. my face.
0: One of the reasons I love the show, I think, it is that it's so rich and has all this stuff bubbling beneath the surface. <clears throat> on, on 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 the outset, it looks like your bog standard Western um, kind of generic. Um, action and adventure but actually if you wanted to deep uh, to dig deeper into it you could find stuff there that's interesting um, and that's certainly certainly one of it um so Alice Fletcher is, is a, one i think of, of a number of strong women characters women characters in the show i think we also have um uh, a couple of gems in the bell so you've got like Maggie who is the um the the sister of the aforementioned blind sheriff played by Scoot McNary. yeah she is a badass. There's no question. Like She is, I think, my favorite character in the whole show. Um, she is uh, She's a widow. Um, she has sort of been put in charge of the town. Uh, <laughs> uh, she knows how to use a gun. Um, she is not, uh, um, by any stretch of the imagination, an innocent character. Um, she uh, is definitely having her own fun um, with she, some of the other women yeah. down.
1: She spends um, the entire time wearing bloke's clothing, just walking around, just swaggering through.
0: She is just a fascinating and interesting mm. uh, uh, presence, I think, yeah. in this show. And she's I think played she's by really
1: uh, Merritt Weaver, isn't she? Um,
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah.
1: Uh, I almost, she was so good. The moment she kind of came on screen, you're like, okay, yes, I like her. She's good. Um, I almost wish that she was the main character of the show. Almost.
0: You could imagine like a sequel maybe, or yes. a series set in the Bell, in which she does become that sort of prominent role. Um, but um, what I loved was was the fact that she gets, like I said earlier on, she gets her hero moment. All mm-hmm. of the characters do, really. yeah. But, um, but 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 um, uh, she's very much taking taking the lead in um preparing the bell for the onslaught of frank griffin and his gang um in in the big final shootout so i love her she's great um, the other character i really liked was martha is a mad german lady who wanders around town naked on a horse like lady godiva and um she is artist and she may or may not have her own uh, man tied up in a um uh, in a shack which she may or may not you know she may not m- use him for her own sexual needs and pleasures uh, but she is also a fascinating interesting um, slightly unusual character the likes of which I, I can't really recall in a show like this yeah um, uh, both both her and um, uh, the Maggie character are very much two women who who are in total charge of their own destinies. <laughs> and if you
1: if you just had a western with those two characters in, you think, well, that's good going, isn't it? But then there are, you know, but but then, then, then the show is stuffed with more of them as well. You have that nice kind of um nice kind of conflict between the women as the, as some of them want to have men back in to kind of, yeah, you know, welcome men back in and allow them to run things because that's how they 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 think it should be. And then you have the others who are very much like, no, we don't need them. Then. Um or you have, like, um, Bill and his, um, his, uh, his daughter, uh, Trudy, and their relationship. You know, there are, there are loads and loads of kind of female characters out there that have so much going on to them, even if some of them don't necessarily get quite the same amount of screen time as, say, um, Maggie. Um, it's, it's fantastic. I love it. I love, I, love that. I love that whole town and that community.
0: Is, yeah, um, yeah you want to spend, you definitely want to spend more time there. Yeah. I mean, but, but we should probably acknowledge that, like I said, this is the reason why ultimately why it's not a feminist masterpiece and it can't, cannot be. It, it, it ultimately comes down to two men. Yeah. Uh, so the final battle is between Roy Good and, and Frank Griffin, which is again, not a spoiler. This is kind of the whole point of the show. If you've ever seen a West,
1: they literally you know, spend seven in, hours telling you that this is happening. And
0: I just want to sp- mention a little bit about Jack O'Connell. we you t- touched upon it briefly, but Jack O'Connell, I think is turning into a, into a significant movie star. Um, he, uh, he is um uh, unsettling um he is <laughs> uh, there is an anger and a flame behind uh, his eyes um and yet at the same time in this show he has to play a character that that has that sort of temper i guess and that sort of um that 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 that, that um uh, part of it, you know, part of him, but he has to sort of rein it in, and he has to learn how to grow up and be a man. And sometimes that means not pulling your weapon and not getting involved in fights and mm. trying to um, remove yourself from the situation. And it's interesting to see his character turn from that impetuous kind of. Um, uh, young boyishness, I guess, at the beginning of the show, and by the end he has to sort of stand up and be the man. Yeah, um, I love
1: the fact that when he's having a having a conversation with his kind of the sort of son like figure, he's having a conversation. He's saying like, you know, there's nothing as dangerous in the world as a man with a gun, uh, and yet, and yet as he's saying that, which is a fantastically pertinent line that deserves to be quoted constantly. Um, that's that's a line that he himself got from Frank when you know when he was a boy learning from from Frank, which is just like such a nice little touch. Yeah. Also, I like your I like your use of the term movie star uh, to describe Jack O'Connell because he's a he's a fantastic actor, but he's also a movie star.
0: He has that I think so yeah charisma that
1: just he, pops um, off
0: the screen. There was part of me that thought, you know what? So in an alternative universe, this character is going to turn into Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. You know what I mean? You can see that character going through that journey. Um, you, you feel that to a certain extent, you know, he, he has got this iconic um, sense about him that a lot of young actors um, would would kill for, I think. Yeah. Uh, there is not – he's not clean and clean cut and nice. There is a sort of uh, a darkness behind him, which I think uh, is could just explode at any yeah. moment, you know? Um, uh, he has made him
1: so good in, in things like 71 and start up, you know, he's um, just that intensity that he brings.
0: And, and that's why this is, this is why it's a lovely character of him because like I say, he's playing a, playing a role that requires him to take that totally internalize it. Yeah. And, Instead of just, you know, exploding and instead of doing that kind of thing where he just turns into rage, actually, um, he needs to take re- step back and, and his character has to learn how to, to deal with situations in a different way.
1: And I was, I was watching this, I was thinking a little bit of um, Angelina Jolie's Unbroken, which had Jack Connell in it. And that was kind of very much billed as his kind of star making big, you know, breakout role. But I never was quite convinced that that was the right fit for him. Whereas you see him in something like this. And you're like, yeah, that's that's Jack O'Connell there. Look at him go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would would love to see more Jack O'Connell on a horse, slightly unshaven, wearing a great hat. um, uh, Rolling across the American landscape. He just fits in there somehow. Yeah. It just makes sense in that world. Before we, uh, before we move on, I would like to uh, point out some of my favourite lines from the programme. Go for it, absolutely. Because you, you did a couple of cool quotes. I wanted to give you a couple of mine. None so fragile as a young man. That's a good quote. That's a good line. Nice, nice. I liked also, that boy's about as musical as a trout.
1: I think that's, that's a line that you could certainly, I think that's one we could use ourselves in our own everyday I
0: think you could see life. that you could use that every day you could you could yeah. you could put a tweet with I that think, line yeah
1: if you're if you're able to for example record yourself saying that to someone in an everyday scenario and send that to us we will absolutely play that on this podcast i mean that's talking okay.
0: about everyday scenarios how about using this one say in a in a tinder or okay cupid situation yeah eventually all of us are gonna find the dirt one way or another it's good isn't it that is a classy line <laughs> Uh,
1: yes, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, that's eminently reusable.
0: Anyway, so yeah, Godless, very good. Um, one more fact about Godless. Yeah, it's quite good, I feel like I need, I, I, I found some facts. So I just need to, to show you one more fact. So, um, uh, and I think, again, just to show you how rich and lovely the show is. Um, so I learned today that, um, so Frank Griffin tells a story halfway through the series about his childhood, and about, you know, about, about what led him to, in, down this path and into the situation. And he tells this quite moving and terrifying story about a, a massacre that he was involved with as a child. And I thought, what tremendous writing! How vivid and evocative! So vivid and evocative, in fact, that I saw. I, I looked it up, and it turns out it was completely real. The Mountain Meadows Massacre, which the Frank Griffin character was involved in as a, as a young boy, was a real thing. Ivan. Oh well. Wow. It was a real thing. So basically, um, it was a, 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 it, a per Wikipedia. <laughs> it was a, a, a series of attacks um, against a, an emigrant wagon train. Um, uh, undertaken um, uh, by the by a local militia uh, in Utah, uh, and it was it was a ruse. It was designed as a um, uh, uh, as a fake out to convince people that there was an American Indian threat. So the militia were posing as Native Americans uh, attacking the immigrant wagon train um, to basically. Uh, inflame in racial tensions in the, in, the, in the region so there you go that's a good fact yeah yeah and it, so um, it, it, you know, it turned into an actual siege and then when the siege <laughs> because basically they didn't expect the immigrants to fight back and they did um, uh, and when it turns out when it turned out it was obviously going to go on for a long period of time um, the militia ended up massacring them so that's nice Anyway, thank you you for sharing that. that More godless facts, but why? I I get again the point of sharing that is this is a really rich, vivid, Mm voluminous show, and I think um, uh, you could view it on the one hand, on the surface level, as this kind of like fairly simple, tropish Western, but actually deep down, there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. uh, I think than maybe maybe first appears. It's, It's really, really good. Uh,
1: So that, and that's only what, eight hours as well? What I like about it is the fact that you're not kind of committed to multiple seasons or anything like that. It's very much like a, you know.
0: Exactly. It's it's almost as long as this podcast, I would say.
1: (laughs) But uh, obviously this is richer and deeper. uh, And and in some cases, troutier. Um, So, you know, what more could you want?
0: None more (laughs) trouty.
1: So that, that brings us now to our, uh, our final segment, uh, which is the double bill.
0: When one ain't enough enough for you, you know what you gotta do, just take two with a double bill.
1: Uh, so in this part of the show, we, uh, we tend to recommend films uh, to go with something that's currently uh, in cinemas. So maybe you, you can't get to the cinema, maybe you've just come back from the cinema, maybe you're planning to go to the cinema, but these are the kind of films that will maybe bring out an extra layer uh, to the thing you've just seen, or perhaps maybe uh, you know, give you a, a different side of, a, of an actor or director that you haven't considered. Uh, and this week we are talking about none other than uh, the disaster artist, which you have no doubt heard about constantly uh, for at least the last fortnight as James Franco and Dave Franco go on their epic media tour uh, profiling this rather unusual film uh, about uh, The Room, one of the best worst movies ever made by a man, a legend called Tommy Wiseau. Uh, Chris, I understand you've recently seen the disaster. It
0: is fantastic. Um, It is hilarious. It is heartbreaking. It's terrifying. Um, uh, J- James Franco just inhabits and becomes Tommy Wiseau uh, for about you know hundred minutes, um, and it is one of the most extraordinary feats of um, gonzo acting that I can remember in recent memory. Um, I think the film itself is, you know, probably slightly better than average biopic type level material. But what makes it is this Frank, this incredible Franco performance. Um, And uh, I, I think he, you know what? I think he's going to get the Oscar. Do you? I do. I feel the tide is turning in that direction. It's really good. I I, I recommend it wholeheartedly. And that comes from, you know, I don't know if I've told you, Ivan, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but I like James Franco. Yes. I think I think he's a talented guy and I think uh, I love his terrible poetry I love his disastrous art. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love um, uh, his weirdo uh, directorial projects. You know, this is a guy who made an adaptation of Child of God by Cormac McCarthy, in which the lead actor takes a dump on camera. You know, this is the level that Franco operates on. And um, I
1: like the fact that at no point he never stops to consider maybe I shouldn't do this.
0: He exactly. Just, he
1: just fully goes for it. Absolutely. in everything.
0: And that's, that's the heart of the disaster artist, because I think, um, for all of Tommy Wiseau's flaws, and this does not portray Wiseau necessarily in the best light. I think he comes across as a monster really, but for all of those problems, um, I think Franco is in love with Tommy Wiseau. And I think he sees a kindred spirit, um, uh, if not one necessarily that you'd like to spend a huge amount of time with. Anyway, Franco, um, I, I, I was, um, while preparing for this, <laughs> preparing. <laughs> um, you, ha-
1: you had facts on a piece of paper, sir. That's, yeah, yeah. Pre- that's I mean, preparation.
0: So I dug out my copy of, oh, no. um, I'm not sure, Ivan, if you're familiar with the the literature of James Franco. Uh,
1: um, vaguely, yes. Uh, like Palo Alto, for example.
0: Palo Alto, which is quite good, and turned yeah. into an okay movie. I quite like uh,
1: that film. I thought that with, was with
0: Val Kilmer in it. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and Val Kilmer, I could do like a whole two-hour podcast. That's on, that's a Val that's Kilmer a special situation. coming soon. So I'm not going to I'm not going to read you from the book itself, but I'm going to read you this little short extract from the um, the sleeve of the of the book. Fantastic. Um, which I think I think tells us a lot about Franco and Tommy Wiseau, and the, I think it explains a little bit about the disaster artist. But anyway. The book, this is from the book, uh, the sleeve of the book Actors Anonymous. Actors Anonymous was um, a series of short stories and manifestos and poems about the nature of acting. It's not good, but I, I like this little bit on the, um, on the sleeve. Um, so it says, the book contains profound insights into the nature and purpose of acting. Franco mercilessly turns his... Uh, james franco persona (laughs) inside out while at the same time providing a fascinating meditation on his art along with nightmarish tales of excess and here's a here's a quote from franco himself hollywood has always been a private club he writes i open the gates i say welcome i say look inside James Franco, everybody. Getting goosebumps and everything. I think that's why that's interesting, is that if you read that in the style of James Franco doing Tommy Wiseau, <laughs> I think it makes you understand James Franco that little bit much more. I think he's, a to- I think he's in total sync with Wiseau. Uh, I think he admires him and in some way thinks he is him. Uh, <laughs> that's what I think.
1: So, uh, so what, uh, what film have you kind of picked to go with the disaster artist, I'm guessing it's something that involves James Franco.
0: Well, I've, I, I, so the, the, the movie, so let me, let me start by saying that the movie that you should probably watch um, as a double pill with this is a film called Interior Leather Bar, which was direct co-directed uh, yes, yeah. by James Franco. Um, and that was an attempt, it was a sort of fake documentary about a fictional attempt to recreate the 40 minutes of lost footage um, from cruising The William Friedkin film um, set in the uh, you know starring Al Pacino about a cop who um, infiltrates uh, the leather gay scene in early um, eighties wherever that was Uh, (laughs) uh, that footage was lost because basically the the Friedkin had um, uh, tried to get the uh, film passed by the um, MPAA couldn't. And made chop after chop after chop, till it was vent- basically, it, it was, you know, it, it was a, a, a distorted version of the film that he wanted to make. So Franco 's film "Interior Leather Bar," attempts to you know, put that footage back together and make it. It's very hardcore, it's very explicit. It's James Franco playing a version of James Franco. Um, uh, it's, it's mental. Um, that is the film that you probably should double bill, but that's not available on VOD, so I haven't chosen that. I've chosen a film <laughs> that is slightly less interesting, um, but I do think there is a tenuous link. So you've got uh, it's 127 hours by Danny Boyle, uh, which is I think probably my favourite Danny Boyle film. Um, uh, this is the story of um, uh, Aaron Ralston, who's a uh, you know. Uh, uh, Adrenaline junkie and a mountaineer and a mountain biker who falls down a um, uh, you know a rock um, in a canyon um, gets stuck in you know, between the rock and the canyon itself all alone and the whole movie is told from his perspective as he basically prepares for his death um, The thing that moves him on and, and um and keeps him going is he starts making this little film he starts talking to his camera um and he records events to, you know uh, while he's while he's stuck down this canyon so like i get so here's my tenuous link and get ready for my tenuous link like the disaster artist it is a, it is a james franco character at his lowest ebb who finds meaning and the will to move on through the power of telling his story on a camera And that's what The Disaster Artist is about. And that, in a weird way, is what 127 Hours is about. Um, And that's why I've chosen that as a double bill. Uh, Although, like I said, what you probably should be watching is Interior Leather Bar. So watch that as well. And once you've watched Interior Leather Bar, Watch uh, Gerald's Game on Netflix because Gerald's Game also has a very very nasty scene involving an arm and um, and slicing, which 127 Hours also does. So have a sort of you know arm uh, slicing double. Arm, bit.
1: Yeah, arm slicing. Watch James Franco.
0: Yeah. And then go and watch The Disaster Artist, and then once you've done all that, go and read Actors Anonymous, and I, I guarantee you you will have a tremendous time. Uh, that's what you should do.
1: I haven't seen 127 Hours in years, um, but I, I remember really liking it. Um, just as a partly because I'm a huge Danny Boyle fan, um, you know, even things like Steve Jobs that people don't really like. i uh, I think I think Danny Boyle does fantastic work, um, but um, but James Franco in that film brings so much energy to something that could be incredibly static. It's yeah. I mean it's all. it's all Franco really. he's you know Danny Ball is a very energetic director who's capable of bringing this kind of drive and momentum and verb, but Franco is right there up you know I'm with Danny Ball driving that film it's um it's, it's kind of one of those points where I think I first really appreciated him as an actor.
0: So I think people think that James Franco is this sort uh, of pretty boy. I know he mm. started as Freaks and Geeks. You know, he's a pretty boy. He does weird sort of art projects on the side. Um, I, you know, he was nominated for an Oscar for, for 127 Hours, and rightly, I think he'll win it for the disaster artist. That's kind of what I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out there now. Um, but uh, I think I think it really showed people that you know, like you say, this guy can command a screen for 90 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and he makes it compelling and engaging. Um, he's not just a pretty face uh, or how he is that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and ultimately, when it comes to the final act, you know, you are totally invested in him, mm. in his fate, um, the fate of his potential children, his partner and, you know, his his and the next 20 years of life of his life. You want to see him go and make it. Um, uh, which makes that you know the, the the cut sequence, if we want to call it that, I guess is way yeah, way of saying yeah. it, um, uh, you know, uh, completely horrible but also necessary. And you're kind of willing him on in a very strange way. Um, you kind of you know it's a, it's a, one of those rare films where you are literally inside screaming at a man, wishing him to cut his arm off. Um, and you know what says cinema more than that? Frankly
1: it's um i think i what i really really like about James Franco is just the uh, the sincerity that he brings to things he is um and i don't just mean that he's kind of you know he's a he's a sincere screen presence he just genuinely seems entirely sincere about everything he does
0: he's into everything that he does and and again that's why i think him and tommy wise yeah. have this connection yeah 100%. because because i mean for all of the, all of its faults the room is a very i think sincere piece of you know albeit terrible filmmaking.
1: So, I, so for my own double bill suggestion, I was, I was torn between quite a few different options, to be honest. Uh, part of me wanted to recommend um, Spring Breakers, uh, just for the Franco. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the film. I'm kind of very middling on it. Uh, but but Jay agree. Franco's yeah. performance in it is something that's quite remarkable. I like
0: him in it, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the other option that I was thinking of was, um, was I'm Still Here. The Walking uh, the Phoenix uh, Gonzo yeah. documentary, uh, in which he played uh, himself or a version of himself, uh, in which he pretended, effectively, to retire from acting for you know a year, a couple of years, uh, and become a rapper. Do you uh, do you remember the, uh, the 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 whole thing that went down around that film?
0: I, I do. That was massively controversial at the time, wasn't it? Because it was people were genuinely offended by that film.
1: Mm, they were. Um, well, not
0: by the film necessarily, but by the the very existence of Joaquin Phoenix doing this and, exactly. and, and, uh, it's, and acting in this part.
1: It's remarkable to see how much he's kind of, uh, I suppose, rehabilitated his image, for want of a better word, You know, given that it was basically yeah. a stupid stunt. Um, but he's um, he's now kind of brought himself massively back, and he's again kind of doing the kind of work that you were, that you know that he was originally doing that that made him this you know award contending movie star.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the master was incredible. Yeah, um, we both I think uh, really admired um, at this year's London Film Festival the film he made with Lynn Ramsey. You were never really here. Oh, 100%. Um, which I think I mean. This is a few months away, I think, um, uh, in terms of cinema releases. But uh, it is an astonishing piece of work, and I think people are going to really, really dig him in it.
1: And he's, um, but he he brings that kind of, you know, the intensity and the dedication, all that stuff. He brings to this really bizarre project. Um, And he's kind of he's going around with his, you know, massive beard, his sunglasses. He's um, he's you know he's talking to himself. He's he's telling everyone he's going to be doing becoming a hip hop star, uh, despite the fact that he cannot rap to save his life. He basically puts the word bitches at the end of every single line to make them rhyme almost. Um, And he kind of, you know, there are these scenes where he meets with Ben Stiller and then he gets angry with Ben Stiller because he's saying that Ben Stiller is playing Ben Stiller on camera. Um, And uh, Or there's this this really heated argument that happens kind of halfway through that results in someone actually sneaking into his bedroom while he's asleep and doing a poo on his face.
0: We've all been there.
1: Uh, You said you wouldn't bring that up, but sure. Um,
0: I bet Franco has been there. And
1: he probably filmed it as well. If
0: Franco Franco has not... I think I might unsubscribe from Franco, frankly. That
1: would be... Franco Fest would be cancelled. Um... But, uh, but, but I like the fact that you have these kind of public stunts that are very much, you know, he goes on, you know, David Letterman and things like that, and the media kind of, you know, surrounded all of that stuff with this massive storm um, of kind of scrutiny. Uh, but it's all of these kind of smaller moments that, that you see when you're watching the film that, that make it interesting. Um, just in terms of that idea of a... Uh, partly kind of a, perhaps as a, as a parallel in Franco becoming uh, considered a more serious actor... And the kind of the way that Joaquin Phoenix kind of briefly stepped completely away from that and then kind of became considered again. But more just in terms of the idea of this kind of frankly bizarre film about, uh, you know, about an actor, about a persona, about this unusual character. Uh, and you have this kind of Tommy Wiseau is this this figure that people refer to. He's this kind of he's, he's become a legend in his own making, which I'm sure he absolutely is very happy with how he's achieved that. Um and Rocky Phoenix kind of is, is playing very much with that idea of this kind of this persona of a star, of a, of a name, uh, and kind of really does basically tear that to pieces. Um, and I still don't really know how much of that was intentional, how much of that was not intentional, how much of that was a stunt, how much of that, you know, was, was genuine in terms of his, his method approach to it. Um, like you have James Franco in, in The Disaster Artist, you know, directing everyone in the voice of Tommy Wiseau, completely inhabiting this this persona for such a long period of time.
0: And there's also, there's also, there's also the persona of Tommy Wiseau himself mm. that people still question. Yes. You know, yeah, exactly. Uh, no one. I mean, the, the film, the film <laughs> talks about, you know, uh, you know, nobody really knows where he got his money. Nobody really knows how old this guy is. Doesn't he
1: say he got it from uh, like selling jeans or something like that? Yeah, which can't possibly
0: be true. <laughs> <I> like jeans? <laughs> but actually, Frank, I wouldn't sell that much. Nobody me. can sell that many jeans. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 you know, there are these mysteries to Tommy Wiseau, which which nobody knows, um, and I think that's a really um, compelling um, match with you. Um, uh, I'm still here because, like you say no one was quite sure no. to what extent he meant and it. And what's fascinating is it's now, you know, years on from that. And yet I still don't know. I, I, I thought it was brilliant simply because it was unlike anything I'd exactly. seen before. Exactly. And I, Bruce, unlike anything I've seen before, James Franco playing Tommy Wiseau and the disaster artist is unlike anything I've seen before. And just for that sheer level of commitment, um, I, I, I think that is a, uh, a good, a good, uh, double bill right there. Um, Like I say, 127 hours is a more conventional movie to a certain degree, but at the same time, you've still got this idea of one man acting and commanding and committing on his own for a long period of time, Um, which again, it's it's it's, you're taking into that unknown place that I think Joaquin Phoenix takes us, and Tommy Wiseau takes us, and you know Franco takes us. um, Frankly, Um, I love him. I love him. I love Joaquin Phoenix this sounds like an amazing night here we should definitely do it immediately.
1: <laughs> yeah deal brilliant uh, <laughs> agreed that wraps up this episode very nicely um i mean firstly uh, let's say thank you to the band tongues for their song religion which we we're using as our theme tune uh and also thanks to sam grover for uh, composing our funky jingles um and uh, meanwhile uh, thank you to you for listening uh, you can subscribe and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Acast, SoundCloud, all of the places. Uh, you can also go to our website, vodpod.co. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, at The Vodpod. Uh, let us know what you thought of Godless, or let us know of your own double bill suggestion for the disaster artist. We'll read that out on our next episode. Uh, and in the meantime, feel free to you know subscribe, like, leave reviews, etc. Spread the good word. Uh, and we will see you in another two weeks. Uh, and until then, have courage and be kind.